Oh, well, the problem, and it matches up with everything I've just been telling you, is that everybody thinks um, ChatGPT and its friends are all for writing things. They're going to write us our emails, and we'll get more spam, and there'll be lots of writing, and what will it write, and all, will it write our programs for us? You got it all wrong. This thing isn't for writing. The hint is in the name. It's in chatting. So the thing that's amazing about AI, which is totally underused, and I think there's a couple startups who are just starting to do something with this, but we should be doing so much more with it, is it's the world's greatest troop of actors. And as many of you will now know, it has a tendency to hallucinate and make things up and uh, come up with stuff. That's great. That's what we want it to do. So when you're looking at a difficult conversation with your boss or with your vendor or with somebody in your team who's underperforming, what you do is you fire up ChatGPT and you give it the right prompt and information. We're learning more about how to do this. I think we should be doing a lot more research in it so that it can do a reasonable representation of the other person that you want to have a difficult conversation with. Douglas Squirrel has been coding for 40 years and has led software teams for 20. He uses the power of conversations to create dramatic productivity gains in technology organizations of all sizes. Squirrel's experience includes growing software teams as a CTO in startups from fintech to biotech to music and everything in between. Consulting on product improvement at over 170 organizations in the UK, US, Australia, and Europe, and coaching a wide variety of leaders in improving their conversations, aligning to business goals, and creating productive conflict. A little fun fact about Douglas is that he lives in Frog Hole, England, in a timber-framed cottage built in the year 1450. Let's dive in. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Tech Leaders Playbook. Thank you for being here, Douglas. Sure. I'm really excited to have you here. Um, Douglas and I met about maybe a month ago, and we really hit it off because uh, he, he he really spoke about things that mattered, right? Making tech teams insanely profitable, communicating between tech teams and business teams, and, and he's got a really cool story. So, uh, Douglas, um, thank you for being here. Um, I'll do a quick brief overview. Uh, Douglas is a 40-year coding uh, veteran. Um, he's led many, many software teams for over two decades and has a very cool story about how he became a CTO. So instead of me talking about your journey, Squirrel, I'd love to. You got a very unique name, by the way, as well. Easy to remember. Good brand. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us how you got here and, 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 and uh, the kind of the the bumps in the road and all the exciting stuff that you told me last time we spoke. Well, very happy to do that. So I've been some kind of senior technical leader for 20, all going on 25 years now. I feel old. But the um, very first senior technical role I had was one I didn't expect. What happened was that I was the, really the only technically minded person in an organization that was doing a lot of consulting and selling a product uh, that someone else made. And it spun out from a larger organization. And so the founder, the, the owner, the new owner, needed to print business cards. And so he came around to all of us and he said, what should I put on your business card? And I was joking. I just said, call me the CTO because there was nobody else who was writing code anywhere in the organization. And I figured that would make me the CTO. But I was kidding. I didn't mean it. And a week later, he came back with a stack of business cards and put them on my desk and left. And I looked at them a while later and I said, oh, my God, this is CTO. I better figure out what that means. So uh, I had to figure it out from there. And I built a 50-person technology team. And the company wow. was very successful, eventually uh, sold successfully to uh, uh, somebody in its industry that was uh, that made great success. And um, some of the people are still there in the larger organization. So I count that a big success. 
But of course, it was success, success built on failure. In other words, I made tons and tons of mistakes all the way through the 10 or so years that I was there. Eventually, that uh, same owner came back to me and he said, Squirrel, you've built this great team and they're doing a super job with loads of people who are very clever and you've um, put in place some people and hired some people who are good leaders and they're even um, you know, running the show much more than you are. And there's not much for you to do anymore. And uh, gosh, you're kind of expensive. So would you please go be wonderful somewhere else? And um, I, I really took you it badly. You worked your I, way out of a job. I did. Well, I got fired. And, and then I got fired at the next one. And then I got fired at the next one. I just kept getting fired, but they were all like that. You know, go be wonderful somewhere else. And eventually <laughs> I said to myself, maybe I could plan for this. Because it seems like what I come, do is I come in, I make things a whole lot better, and then I move on. But you, you could actually do that on purpose rather than just by happenstance, which is what had uh, occurred to then. So then I became a consultant, and I first started doing fractional work where I'd be a somebody's CTO for a period and then go away. Um, and now I do very intensive coaching, evaluations, strategy work, and so on, where my engagement can be very short, um, as, as short as a day. But I make a big impact on the company, and then I work with many such companies, over 200 in the last uh, eight or nine years. Wow. You've worked with over 200 companies. Mm -hmm. Wow. Tell, tell me a little bit about what you focus on with these companies, Douglas. Like you go in, how do you go about figuring out what they need and how do you go about tackling those things? Knowing that you're, it could be a one-year uh, project, it could be a one-day project, it could be a six-month project. Tell, tell us a little bit about how to go about that. Whole range there. And, and you, you gave a nice summary at the beginning. The, the typical type of thing that a company like this wants to do, and the reason they turn to me, I call this a squirrel-shaped hole, is that there's um, an improvement that they'd like to make. And sometimes it's an improvement from a great base. So uh, I'll take a company like Zego, who's an amazing insure tech uh, in Europe that is really revolutionizing motor insurance. And they had some amazing managers, some amazing technology people, and they built a, a really solid business on... Uh, helping people like uh, Uber drivers and DoorDash drivers and people like that to get insurance. Very important, very quick movement, and, and the software was well uh, suited for that. But the growth rate was incredible, and the managers were not up to snuff for um, the size of teams. They'd start with uh, managing two people, and suddenly they'd be managing 20 or 50. And um, so I worked with uh, a number of folks, including one uh, fa fantastic person. I'm actually hanging out with her this evening. Um, and she was an engineering manager, something like that. She had a, a relatively small team. She became the CTO of the entire organization of 200, 250 engineers. And she's just recently moved on to, to do something new and exciting. So that's a, an example of a company doing really, really well, but that needs to accelerate a lot uh, to become a unicorn, which uh, um, uh, uh, Zigo did. But then there's the opposite end of the spectrum where a company is doing really badly and is about to spiral down and needs a lot of help. And of course, there's lots in between. But I'll just tell you, since you enjoy my stories, I'll tell one more. How's that? Sure, please. In this story, when I will leave the company nameless. Um, uh, ask me separately if you want to know who it is. I'd be happy to introduce you. Um, this company was in the, um, we'll say, in the property business and um, uh, had a tech team uh, that was scattered across all of Europe was um, uh, working intensively on lots of things, costing the company um, uh, loads and loads of money every single month and had nothing to show for it. And the owner came along to me and said, Squirrel, can you just look? Is, is there anything here? Uh, what, what's happening? Why is this not working? 
and I went and looked, and there was no nobody behind the curtain. There was nothing actually that worked together, and I could see that very clearly in just a few hours spent with the engineers. And so I broke this bad news to the owner, and he sat quietly for a few minutes and said, okay, let me figure out what to do over the weekend, come back on Monday, and we'll work out how we proceed. And I came back on Monday, and all the chairs were empty. And I said, oh my God, what happened? And all the virtual chairs as well, the people are scattered around. Everyone was gone. And I said, what happened? He said, well, they weren't doing anything, so they're gone. I said, okay, that's pretty radical. That's not what I told you to do, but um, I, I can see why you would. That's going to stop your burn rate, but how are you going to run the organization? He said, well, there's that one guy back there in the corner. And I had to get out my field glasses and look, and there, there was, in fact, one guy back there. And he knew how the old system worked. So this was a case where they had something that had worked, and they built the company on it. And then they said, oh, we're going to build the new, shiny, amazing, wonderful thing. Oh, boy. This did not work out very well. That works out sometimes. Didn't work out for them. But that was the guy who knew how the old system worked. We rebuilt the whole team around him, and we built in a few weeks what the company actually needed in the old system. And we evolved the new system to be something new and brilliant and wonderful and exciting. Now they're actually a leader in technology in that particular piece of the, the real estate industry. Now, I want to I want to caution everyone that if they come across this because I'm coming to work with them, that this is very rare. So sometimes engineers come up, oh, my God, Squirrel, you're the kind of person who comes and fires everyone. No, <laughs> this happened like once. So one time, um, not very common, but it's the other extreme. You left the company in better hands, it sounds like. It, it was a much healthier company. It was better for the other people. They were in the wrong position. They were being directed incorrectly. It just was not working. So they, they were better off um, doing something else, which they were able to do. How did you... How did you determine so quickly that nothing was getting done? Because that's an interesting one. And it's one that actually startups face all the time, right? Because in the beginning, they don't have necessarily a team. Bigger to... companies have the same failing. Wow. Um, but I see it very common with startups because what what I see is they, they don't necessarily have the, the money to, to build it in-house. They don't have the expertise in-house. They don't have a CTO to build the team. So they go offshore a lot of times without a lot of vetting. And they end up, you know, going for the lower cost kind of project or the team. And nine months later, they have a bunch of pieces that don't talk to each other and no one's really built anything. So how did you determine that something was not right, first of all, that nothing was being done? And, and let me just address the, the bit I said about the larger companies, because the problem isn't not having enough money or building it off site or not having a good CTO. The problem is accountability. So what happens is that the tech team, because they're, they're these special wizards who wear fancy hats and, and know about Star Wars and um, uh, can, can type special fancy things and know how to turn the printer off and on again, because they have all this secret knowledge, nobody goes and asks them the same way you would with customer service. Like if customer service had a whole bunch of calls that were dropped, you'd notice. You'd say, hey, you guys aren't on the phone very much. You're customer service. Shouldn't the phones be doing – what's going on here? But for some reason in technology, because it is so mystified, in a large organization, in a small organization, in uh, any industry, what you find is um, non-technical people who don't have this effective accountability. And so often what I'm doing, as I did in this case, coming back to your question, is providing accountability that really they can't escape. So uh, I come along and say, have you ever made this piece talk to that piece? Can you show me? And either they say, yes, we have, but they can't show me, or they say, no, we haven't, which is most common in this kind of situation, or they say, yes, we have, and here it is working. And I say, oh, great, we're in good shape. Now, what else could we add to that? So uh, what 
large and small and uh, industry, uh, companies and in, in every industry, what people should be doing is insisting that engineers show them very frequently. Often it can be every single day, but certainly every week, certainly at least every couple weeks, show them working pieces that all work together, that do a thing. And if you can do that, and the engineers know how to do this, they just don't believe you want to, if you do that, then you never wind up in this situation, which happens to everybody. Wow. Huge, huge. And so what was the impact of, of first of all, figuring this out, right? That, that the guy was spending God knows how much money building something that didn't exist. Hundreds of thousands every month, yeah. Even if it existed, it was never going to come together. Um, what was the impact? So you built this team around this individual, and what happened? Well, they became a technology leader in what they do. Now, I'm, I'm obscuring a little bit what they do. Sure. But you can imagine that, um, let's put it this way, in, in the property world, you have an awful lot of pieces of paper, and you have to keep track of all those pieces of paper. So they did stuff with various bits of the pieces of paper that people have to do when they want to buy pieces of land. And um, they are now, um, in the UK at least, far ahead of everyone else on their technology. So there are many people who manage the pieces of paper. You can imagine the sorts of things that people do with real estate. And there are plenty of folks who have a little army of folks, maybe somewhere far away, maybe nearby. And the army of people make sure that all the pieces of paper are lined up correctly and have the right signatures and stamps and all the other fancy stuff you have to do in a fairly antiquated industry like real estate. And uh, these folks have it uh, very slick, very automated, and I think everybody agrees that that's their main selling point, is that their technology is slicker, more capable, does more of the correct stamping and updating and checking um, than anybody else does. And what's incredible is that that had always been the um, owner's vision. It had never been true, and um, the new system that they were trying to build was supposed to create this. It didn't. But then we found that the old system actually could do what they needed much quicker and um, by building around the, the knowledgeable person who could show progress every day, every week, uh, then the owner could say, yeah, do more of that. Yeah, do less of that. Automate this piece because he knew the real estate industry, that piece of it very, very well. And so we were able essentially to download his brain into the software and by evolving it quickly, get to a state where he now dominates his market um, completely. Douglas, every one of us entrepreneurs has this shiny object kind of syndrome a little bit, right? We love uh, innovating. We love trying new things. And I speak for myself as well. And we all have that one guy or gal in the corner quietly just going along with the flow. It sounds like this gentleman was just whatever. Whatever you guys need, I'm a team player, I'll do. How do we tap into that brain? Because he could have potentially prevented this whole thing I mean, I think it worked out for the better because I think you were able to scale his his products, probably productize it, create a real SaaS offering and all that. So I think it worked out. But how do we tap into that one guy, the quiet guy in the corner, who probably would have told you all along, like, hey, they're not building anything over there. I'm, I'm back to accountability. So um, I'll, I'll tell you another story, um, which which illustrates this very nicely and uh, is, is in a shocking industry. So this is not an industry you would think of that can, can do this sort of thing. So... Uh, this um, company, uh, again, I'll obscure a little bit, but uh, is essentially building what's close to a medical device. It's not officially um, uh, got a stamp on it that says I'm a medical device, but it's a sort of test you take that gives you information that might cause you to cut off part of your body if uh, you find out that that part is likely to get a disease. So oh, it's wow. kind of important that you get this software right. 
right? I mean, if we buy the wrong property or we don't stamp it correctly or something, that might cost us a lot in legal fees, but nobody's going to be missing some elbow or something like that, whereas this had massive, massive consequences. It's an odd thing to miss, by the way, an elbow, just an elbow. Everything else is in place. I have a lot of biotech clients, but I'm not a doctor. So, uh, yeah, don't have me amputate anything. I I'm get glad, a lot of trouble. glad to hear that. <laughs> but the point is that I showed up to figure out what the problem was in this organization. And um, they, they had a, a, a lot of quiet folks in the corner. Um, and, and their problem was not that they were trying to replace it and they weren't building anything. It was those quiet folks in the corner were following incredibly careful guidelines for very good reasons. They're like, man, we don't want people to cut off parts of their bodies. We want to make sure this medical device, we want to make sure we're extremely, extremely careful and we never make any mistakes. And it turned out that um, even in this industry, and I find this over and over again in things like satellites and, and um, uh, uh, biotech and, and other places, you wouldn't expect it, that there's much more room for error and experimentation and learning than you think there is. Now, of course, what they didn't do was just say, hey, let's try changing this to 47 and, you know, update and, and send it and see if it works the way that, you know, Microsoft might with your uh, – or, or Zoom might. You know, Zoom was making me update my Zoom this morning. Then I said, why are you making me update? I don't want to do this. They didn't do anything like that. So there was some caution. But what they were able to do was to say, we're going to try in test environments – in uh, with um, all the right regulations, with all the right rules being followed for compliance, um, we're going to change this software every two weeks. And it will do new things. And uh, eventually, when everybody's happy with it, we'll put it on actual devices that actual people are using to make decisions. But we can get feedback from actual doctors, actual hospitals, actual users every two weeks. This is revolutionary in the biotech industry. Nobody thinks this way. And so they were able to leapfrog their competition hugely by and, and make their salespeople much, much happier because, you know, that salespeople go visit a hospital and say, would you like this? And they say, great, do these five things. A year later, they'd show up and they'd say, who are you again? What, what are you? Why are you here? Whereas if you can show up in two weeks and say, remember, oh, yeah, I remember you. And, I need the, and you've got the thing already. Oh, fantastic. Right. Very different sales conversation. So that level of accountability and delivery made a huge, huge difference to sales, which is what unlocks, and I'm finally back to your question, that's what unlocks that entrepreneurial urge in all of us, and those of us who found startups have it even more, that urge to, to satisfy customers, to give them feedback, to do what they need. And often I find that the people who have done that outsourcing, who have done that, um, you know, make, made those huge investments like the guy in the story I was just telling, uh, they have done that because they think they're going to get that kind of feedback, that kind of vigor, that kind of response. And they, they, what they aren't doing is demanding it. And my message is you can demand that. Look, we're doing it in biotech for pity's sake. We're, doing, we're releasing every two weeks. Here in my e-commerce company where I'm selling T-shirts, we probably could release every day. And we could probably you know, break a few of them and send the wrong T-shirt, but we would learn a lot. So I want you to do that. And when you do that effectively, and that's what I teach both people outside the technology team and inside the tech team to do, you get huge, huge results which then satisfy that entrepreneurial urge. Perfect segue. Douglas, you're big on delivering software daily or at least weekly. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, you kind of did, but how do you make that possible and, and how do you get people to be comfortable releasing software that's not perfect? Oh, well, so those are two different questions. Let me do the first one. You might have to remind me about the second because I'm going to get passionate about the, about the first one, but I, I have great thoughts for both ones. The first one uh, how do you do this is, first of all, you tell the engineers that it's okay to do it. 
because the amazing thing is that um, there's been this quiet revolution. It's absolutely been silent. People just aren't aware of it. And this silent revolution has resulted in things like, well, I was complaining about it, but Zoom updating more or less automatically when you open it. And um, some of us are old enough. And Aventus, I can't tell if you're old enough or not. You don't look like you have much gray hair. But I'm some there. of us are old enough to remember when you got CDs in the post. I do remember that. And you take that physical CD and, okay, good. And, and you put it in your computer. Some, some kids listening to this will say, what's a CD? Yeah, what's a CD? It's this round thing and it has software on it, believe it or not. It even had music. It's shocking. But you'd put it into your computer, you'd slide it in the side, and um, it would update your software, and you'd have the new version 5.9.2 of whatever it was. And we have now developed not only, we've gone way beyond CDs, and we have the internet and so on, but a lot of other tools that allow engineers to make very, very frequent updates very safely. And engineers know about these things. This is something almost every engineer on the planet knows anybody responsible, worth their salt, will understand what these tools are, and they'll know fancy terms like continuous integration and continuous delivery and unit testing and other stuff that if, if you're not a technical person, you don't have to worry about because they know it. What you have to do is unlock their knowledge by telling them, I do want to see a demo on Thursday. And they say, but if I were to do that, it might not work and it w uh, would not have all the right features. And, uh, you know, the report might be blank, but it would have all the right columns in it. And you say, that's what I want. And when you can get across, and you have to say it a lot, because they don't believe you at first, because they think, oh, they need it to be perfect. They need everything to work right. Think back to those biotech folks. They're like, man, I don't want to amputate the wrong finger. I better get it perfect. But it turned out they weren't going to amputate anything. They could actually use these tools, which are well-known and well-understood as part of this quiet revolution, and actually begin to use them and get benefit and feedback from customers. So the mechanics of this look like the following. Um, you say to engineers, what I want you to do is divide up your work into teeny, teeny, teeny pieces. The fancy name for this is Elephant Carpaccio. You take the elephant of your software, you can imagine a great big elephant sitting here on my desk, and you slice it, and you slice it into pieces like Carpaccio meat. I'm a vegetarian, so I'm terrible at this. Sounds you, delicious, I think you, by the way. You, you, I'm sure it does. Uh, you hold it up, and you can see through it. That's how thin it is. And a slice this thin might look like this. I might say, uh, so I'm going to build a new uh, Zoom button, and what it's going to do is uh, automatically hook me up so I can record a podcast. It'll be the podcast button. And um, what there's going to be first here at Zoom when we build this feature is a button that says podcast. And you say, well, what else is going to happen? No, no, when you click the button, nothing will happen. You say, How, what good is that? You say, well, we'll see whether people click the button. And if they click the button, then they're interested in recording a podcast in Zoom. If they're not, and maybe they wouldn't, I can't see why they would, but if they were, then you'd know, and if they weren't, they, then, they, then you would know not to invest more in the feature. And any engineer worth his salt can put up one button in one day very quickly. If You don't have to worry about whether it does anything. And then you say, okay, I'm going to click the podcast button, and it's going to open a, a screen that says uh, podcast recording here, and it'll have two um, boxes like we're looking at here, and, um, but it, you won't be able to record anything. It'll, it'll just be the pictures. My God, what use is that? Well, people will complain. They'll say, hey, wait a minute, the podcast feature doesn't work. And then you can ask them, hey, wait a minute, what did you expect it to do? Well, I expected my picture over here and your picture over there. Or you didn't expect them the other way? No, you expected you over. Ah, okay, great, I'll put you over here. And you get all of this very useful feedback, and you can do all this very, very quickly. Now, of course, if you're building a medical device, you might want to do this slightly differently because you don't want to be breaking things as you go and making things um, more complicated. So it is more complicated to do, but it's exactly the same principle. So essentially what you're doing is unlocking the ability engineers already have to break things into teeny tiny pieces, which don't make individual um, huge strides forward, but allow you to get feedback from customers. 
And that, again, under, un unleashes that entrepreneurial engine because once you start getting that huge amount of feedback from customers, you can actually act on it. And um, you, you do have to deal with the fact that things will be broken and customers will complain and they'll say, this doesn't work like I want. And you have to turn that into, this is the amazing new thing that'll be ready next week. But then you're never stuck thinking, gosh, I wonder if this is finished. I wonder if they're doing anything. I wonder if I've got pieces that work together because, you know, you looked at it yesterday and you're going to look at another one today and another one tomorrow. So, Douglas, basically the concept is it, it's the whole world of Agile, right? Instead of waiting, building something, talking about something, pre-planning, you know, by the time you're ready to the old kind of waterfall methodology, which exists in certain industries and should, um, instead of doing that, continuous delivery, continuous improvement, push, you know, features out and see what people think, you know, and keep keep moving, right? That's the idea here. Well, Agile is in, is in the name of my book, Agile Conversations, partly because the publisher wanted it there and partly because I want to talk to people who are doing this, because so many of them are not. So many of them have this kind of, they pay lip service to this idea and they say, oh yes, we'll have a sprint and we'll do the pre-planning for the pre-planning for the sprint and then we'll do the pre-planning and then we'll do the planning and then we'll do the actual work and then we'll do the testing and the testing of the testing and then eventually we'll have something. And six months later you say, where's my software? And somehow this has all become um, uh, very uh, corrupted in a way that the original folks 20 years ago who, who thought up the term Agile never would have expected or wanted. And um, the whole idea of experimentation, of learning from your customers, of um, slicing things into small pieces ha has gone by the wayside for far, far, far too many organizations. At the same time as we've made it much, much more technically possible to do. So uh, I, I think while it's true that this has a, these principles and these ideas have a lot to, to, to say about Agile as it is envisioned, they don't have that much to say about what, how Agile is actually practiced. And, and that's a great shame. It sounds like that that we're basically you're back to waterfall, pretending it's agile. Really, if you think about it, based on what you just described, which is what so many people have done. It it and there's a really good reason for it. Um, and and I, I'm not going to try to to draw things um, on your screen here, but uh, just imagine that you have a slider you can you can slide up and down, but it's tilted, and you can slide the slider toward being predictable. And then you can be super careful and do uh, many, many checks and all the sorts of things that you're envisioning. Or you can be super productive, but not very predictable. So you won't know when it's going to get finished, but you can get an awful lot of things done. That's a slider you can move up and down. But the reason it's tilted, like I described, is because there's this force of gravity. And the force of gravity, which causes people to pull for this kind of waterfall pretending to be agile, uh, great predictability, wanting to make sure they know that it will be done on Thursday the 12th at 5 p.m. exactly and how many people will work on it until then, is a desire for control. They would like to be certain and they would like to know that the thing is working and they don't trust the people working on it. And what I keep telling people is maybe you could build up the trust. Maybe you could move your tilted slider up a little bit. You don't have to move it up all the way. You don't have to be unpredictable. That's fine. But you can move it so that you are less predictable, but you have more information. And therefore, ironically, that gives you more control. So it's not that you get more control by moving toward greater predictability. In fact, you get less control because the engineers are trying so hard to get everything right that they slow down so much that they lose feedback, and therefore they often build the wrong thing. Instead, you increase the feedback from the customers. You get greater control, um, but less predictability, which typically people don't need. I like it. You uh, you mentioned making every mistake in the book as a CTO. Oh, yeah. 
right? Oh, yeah. Uh, give us your top three uh, and, and something we can take away from it. And, and hopefully, like a big brother, we can, we can learn from your mistakes and not make those mistakes. Excellent. Well, I'll, I'll try to think of three. Um, I, I think I probably have 100, but as, as is typical, it's hard to think of, hard to think of three when you're, when you're put on the spot. Let's think. So I didn't test people when I brought them in, or I didn't believe the tests I gave them when I was hiring them. So it's very, very important for every type of role. At first, I thought it was just for engineers, but it turns out that any role for sales, for for customer service, for marketing, it's important to get people doing whatever it is they're going to be doing because they can talk a great game but not actually do it. And and that is particularly noticeable in in software, but it is true everywhere. So I did plenty of that and hired the wrong people. Sorry, people. I I didn't mean to hire you incorrectly. Um, I believed way too much in my own um, uh, uh, accuracy, so I I had confirmation bias um, to the extreme, and uh, I would say, well, I'm a software developer, and I know how to build this, so either I can go build it, that didn't work out very well, because I suddenly had 30 or 40 or 50 others to take care of, and I was neglecting them to write software, or even worse, I would tell them, I know how to build it, build it this way, uh, do it my way, and and don't... um, don't worry about your, your other ideas, just do it my way. And that lack of joint design caused us to waste loads of money uh, uh, and uh, put in, in place lots of systems and processes and tools, which looked pretty cool to me, but didn't actually provide much business value. And, and I'd say that's the last one. And the most important one is that in far too many cases, I emphasized something that seemed like a good idea to me and may in fact have been a good idea, but I didn't explain it well to others in terms of their language. And a perfect example of that is a wonderful practice called pairing, where two engineers work at one computer. I mean, you think, what do you mean? Did they alternate letters? You know, what does that mean? How could they possibly, you know, one, they're both typing? No, one person's typing, one person, the same person has the hand on the mouse, and the other person is thinking. And it turns out that if you're not typing, you can do more thinking, and actually you get much better results. Um, but Pair programming is the fancy name for it. It's actually evolved further, and there's something called ensemble or mob programming, where you have multiple engineers, like five or ten, on one computer. That seems even more nuts. But as I would describe this to, say, that same CEO, the one who who, um, made me a CTO without uh, (laughs) without me realizing that he really meant it, um, when I would describe it to him, I would say, this is a good practice. This is what other engineers are doing. Uh, This is very helpful to us. It helps us be um, uh, better programmers. All of that is completely meaningless. That is a useless argument and does not help one whit with somebody like him. If I could tell him this is what resulted in us delivering this feature on time with no bugs, and it's going to allow us to deliver twice as many uh, in the next uh, two weeks when we will have these things and we can show you the results. Uh, and, And the reason that we're able to do this is because of the knowledge sharing and the understanding and the thinking time that this is creating for us. That would have been a very different conversation. Whereas I had quite a few very difficult conversations with him in which, for example, he would say things like, well, if, if you want people to, to do a better job, uh, why don't you send them for typing lessons so they can type faster? And I said, we are not talking the same language, which we were not, but that was my fault. And that's why I wrote Agile Conversations, for example, to help engineers and non-engineers talk to each other more effectively. So perfect segue for my next question. Um, when we spoke and, and in your bio, it talks about dramatic productivity gains through conversations. And you just talked mm-hmm. about conversations, the lack thereof. Um, can you elaborate on how conversations can enhance productivity in tech teams? Absolutely. 
and um, I'll, I'll tie it to some of these stories and these examples. Um, uh, and I'm trying to think of, of one of many great examples. Let me think of uh, So I'm going to tell in the context of another story. Um, great company who I can name uh, called Perlego. And Perlego uh, matches up professors and students with the right textbooks. So they have uh, uh, amazing SaaS tools for universities and, and students and, and professors to, to work with. Because uh, that process of buying a textbook, you might remember uh, from university or high school, was very painful, right? It's like, oh, I if I got the right edition and where do I find it? And the professor gave me the wrong one and all kinds of other stuff goes wrong. So they solved this problem really well. And their amazing founder, Gautier, came to me and said, Squirrel, I've got 200 ideas. I've got all these wonderful things and my team takes forever to get anything done. Can you coach the team so that they will improve? And I said, that sounds great. You know, usually it takes me about three months. We'll, we'll get moving faster. We'll get those ideas out and in the world. And I went to the team and they said, nobody trusts us. Nobody believes that we're going to get stuff done. So I, back to my slider again. They were way down at the predictability end because they felt they couldn't do anything else. They were not trusted and they, they couldn't make a change. They felt that they were, they were under the thumb of the rest of the organization insisting that they do things a certain way. And I said, okay, you're going to have a different kind of conversation with the rest of the organization. You're going to have a trust conversation, and you're going to describe some things you could do differently, but in their language. And there's a whole mechanism for doing this. And, and um, I teach people using a tool that, that makes a lot of sense to engineers called test-driven development for people. There's a process that they use in software that actually turns out to have a human analog, which is very helpful for building trust just like this. And so the group of folks that I was coaching said, okay, Squirrel, we'll try this. We're going to take this plan around. We're going to see what people think about it. And we're going to use their language like you taught us. But we don't think it's going to work. You know, we know things here. They never work that way. That's not how it's... And I said, go and try it. You know, uh, uh, just a few days when I came back to them again, they said, my God, more people were behind this than I thought. At least a number of them were willing to try it. And um, they're willing to actually make some shifts in how they work with us so that we can do more experiments. Well, the result was that after about six, seven weeks, um, the entire engineering organization had shifted how they were working. And they were now doing experiments, um, about eight experiments every week, many of which didn't work and which you know, gave people the wrong textbook or uh, didn't get people to click on uh, whatever search they wanted to do. That was great. Failure was a good thing. Getting something that didn't succeed told you that you shouldn't do that again. But quite a number of them did work. And so that was a huge shift in um, uh, how the company worked, uh, all brought about because we had those trust-based conversations. And it wasn't because the engineers didn't know how. It wasn't because there wasn't an appetite to do it. It wasn't because the uh, uh, founder wasn't very keen. It was because the conversation hadn't happened, and therefore the trust wasn't there, and therefore nobody was willing to make the shift on the tilted slider. Huge. It's all about conversations. In fact, you have a book on it, right? I do. Tell us very briefly about Agile Conversations and what made you want to write this book. And, and more importantly, for the listeners in a small take, what, what's something they can take away from it as they as they lead their teams and how quickly they can implement this for their staff. Fantastic. Well, the first thing is my publisher requires me to say that you should buy the book. But actually, what I say is if you want a free copy of the book, just write to me. So get, get, go to uh, DougasSquirrel.com. I'm happy to offer it to any of your listeners. Tell me an address. I'll uh, send you a copy. I just got a whole bunch of new ones from the, the, the publisher. So uh, I'm not trying to sell the book. Um, but I wrote it with my friend Jeffrey Frederick. Uh, Jeffrey was actually with me at that same company that I've been talking about, the one where I was first CTO. Taught me a lot of wonderful things. And uh, it's full of uh, practical things to do. Now, they're painful. 
And so there's two types of readers of this book. There's the people who say, boy, it was fun to read that. You know, I did it in a weekend. You know, I really learned some ideas and they're really helpful. And that's great. We're very happy. Glad that people read the book that way. But the people who really get a lot out of it are the people who treat it like a workbook. Because it turns out that conversations are something you can practice. It's kind of like uh, going going to the gym or eating healthy. You're telling me you were eating more healthy. You know, uh, you're going to drink your green juices and you're going to do certain things. And it's not necessarily that much fun. You know, it'd be more fun to eat ice cream. But instead, you do this more painful thing. And it turns out that that builds your um, uh, heart health and it builds your muscles and it builds other things. And suddenly you have skills you didn't have and you're feeling much healthier and heartier. The same thing happens if you practice your conversations in a disciplined way. So we have lots of exercises throughout the book um, which allow you to actually improve your conversations. This tester in development for people is one that I uh, uh, that is there in chapter three. So you look at a conversation and you write down one that you've actually had. This is actually one of the most painful bits is you actually write it on a piece of paper and you remember, oh my God, I said this. Oh Lord, I said that. And I was thinking this, but I didn't tell anyone. And you have to kind of force yourself to confront this. And once you've got through that emotional pain, you can think, well, maybe I could do this thing differently. Because here on page 17, it says I could do this. And so you take up a new action. And so um, if listeners just want to improve their conversations right away, maybe they don't have time to read my book. Um, that's perfectly fine. I'm not trying to sell it to them. Try writing down a conversation and circling all the question marks. And I predict that you will find that there are not very many question marks from you because you have not been sufficiently curious. This is almost always true. And that's a very simple example of many more that are in the book uh, of how you can learn from recording a conversation, recording it in writing, so you can look at it and go, okay, here it is. There are no question marks on this page. I'm probably not being curious enough, and therefore I'm not learning enough from my customer or from my employee or whatever it is. And then you can come up with something different. Where could I have asked a question? Well, I could ask this question here. When I hear this kind of thing, then I could ask this kind of question. And it prompts you then to be begin to improve the skill. Uh, just like, say, when you lift weights, you might say, oh, well, I'm lifting the weights this way. That's probably not going to help. I need to lift more vertically. And when you get to that, suddenly you can lift more weight. Nice. Douglas, you, you've been through just the last 10 years. You've, been, you've seen, you said, 200 plus companies. Mm -hmm. um, you probably have been exposed to every technology stack times 10. And none of them matter, by the way. Oh, so it doesn't matter what tech stack you're using. All the same problems happen. That I believe. I guess my next question is going to be, what are your, your favorite technology stacks, maybe top one or two, and your least favorite from a overall uh, how difficult it is to implement changes and how, it, how difficult it is to, to hire for whatever problems that a CTO might have dealing with technology stacks, whether it's legacy or modern or next, next level? Okay. So I'm going to give you a surprising answer and a tongue-in-cheek answer. So uh, favorite is um, various stacks that are based on the programming language PHP. So the people who are engineers will be out there going, oh my God, he likes PHP. Everyone knows that's a big mess. It's very painful to work with and so on. It has absolutely one saving grace that is absolutely stupendously incredible, which is, uh, it, which is it allows you to um, uh, build a big red button. And when I used PHP at a particular e-commerce company, um, we built this big red button, which allowed us to undo anything we had changed instantly. And there's a technical reason for this, which we can go into having to do with virtual machines per request and other stuff. doesn't really matter. The point is, when you push this big red button, the change you just made to the software live is completely undone, and you're back to the version that was just before that one. And so what we did is we sat right next to the customer service people, 
and we would break the site all the time. Uh, we just didn't worry about testing. We didn't worry about anything. We had to move fast. That was the main reason we were going to win in this market. And so we would break the site so that nobody could log in, nobody could buy anything. And we'd wait to hear from the customer service people because we didn't know whether we'd broken it or not. But within a minute, predictably, they'd say, oh, my God, the phones are lighting up. Everything's broken. We'd hit the big red button. We'd say it's all fixed. And the advantage of that was that we could learn incredibly fast and we didn't have to worry about breaking things. Our customers were very forgiving. We, they were not cutting off parts of their bodies, right? You would not do this in biotech. But um, uh, they, they were very forgiving. They wanted cheap deals. They would be willing to try again. And because of that, we, weren't, uh, we, we had low cost uh, of uh, breaking the site and the ability to roll back instantly. So um, few other programming languages have that there. You can set that up in other environments, but PHP, for this technical reason, makes that particularly easy. Uh, so uh, I'd say that speed of iteration that it affords makes me say that's the best one. Um, and I'd say the worst one is um, telephone-driven development, which you can do with any programming language. Um, but this is where uh, you do the, or even worse, Slack-driven driven development, um, where you, you, uh, somebody non-technical um, uh, leaves a phone message or writes a Slack message and says, here's a bunch of things to do. Do it just like this. Don't ask me any questions. Goodbye. And uh, that tech stack, which, which does work, by the way, it, it will produce software. You know, you can hire everybody off Fiverr or Gumtree or whatever it is and tell them stuff to do. And they'll ask you questions which you will ignore, and then they will build stuff. And, and that's how you get in the situation of that first story that I told you about, where you have a whole bunch of pieces that don't talk to each other. And um, it's, it's not a tech stack in the sense of uh, PHP or, or uh, Ruby on Rails or something like that, but I see it used depressingly often. So uh, the... the uh, one-way communication, uh, which seems like it's very efficient, because all I have to do is tell them what to build, and they'll build it, and they will, and then that's the problem. Got it. Without asking all the right questions. Um, it wouldn't be an interview without asking a CTO about AI. Tell me really quickly your thoughts on AI and where it's headed. Oh, well, the problem, and it matches up with everything I've just been telling you, is that everybody thinks um, ChatGPT and its friends are all for writing things. They're going to write us our emails, and we'll get more spam, and there'll be lots of writing, and what will it write, and all, will it write our programs for us? You got it all wrong. This thing isn't for writing. The hint is in the name. It's in chatting. So the thing that's amazing about AI, which is totally underused, and I think there's a couple startups who are just starting to do something with this, but we should be doing so much more with it, is it's the world's greatest troop of actors. And as many of you will now know, it has a tendency to hallucinate and make things up and uh, come up with stuff. That's great. That's what we want it to do. So when you're looking at a difficult conversation with your boss or with your vendor or with somebody in your team who's underperforming, what you do is you fire up ChatGPT and you give it the right prompt and information. We're learning more about how to do this. I think we should be doing a lot more research in it so that it can do a reasonable representation of the other person that you want to have a difficult conversation with. And then you could ask it to evaluate. Hey, how did I do at asking you questions? And it will look and it will say, you didn't ask me any questions. Well, that probably means I wasn't very curious. Okay, restart. Be the same wow. person. Okay, now I'll try asking you some questions. And the fact that it makes stuff up is great. That's what we want. So uh, I, I just think it's, it's such a fantastic tool for practicing human conversations, and it is way, way, way underused for that. Very smart. Leave us with where people can find you if a company wants to... Uh, streamline their tech team, uh, deliver quality software daily, weekly, monthly, um, and and learn to have conversations with business folks and technical folks. How do they find you? Let's talk about that, um, the book and all that. Fantastic. Well, the easiest thing to do is go to douglassquirrel.com. So as long as you can remember my name, yeah, I'm there. And you'll find email and Twitter or X or whatever it's called this week, 
that even more importantly, you'll find the squirrel phone. And uh, on the the, the um, on the website is this phone number for this phone that's sitting right here. And I like it when people phone me. And oh. um, all the steps to use a phone are the following. You pick up the phone, you push buttons, <laughs> and you talk to squirrel. Uh, those are all the steps. So everybody's forgotten. They think you have to do a whole bunch more. So uh, DougasSquirrel.com is where you'll find that. And I'd love to hear from any of your listeners. Uh, I also do have a community of uh, tech and non-tech people learning together. And I have free events every week. Um, I have uh, um, uh, lots of material that's free for all those folks. That's my way of giving back. Wow. And that is at SquirrelSquadron.com. Uh, but if you're driving or something, go to DougasSquirrel.com. There's links to the squadron as well. But um, there, there's me and, and my consulting DouglasSquirrel.com and then the community at SquirrelSquadron.com. Amazing. Douglas, you've been great. Thank you for all the amazing takeaways. And uh, I've learned so much, and I'm sure my listeners have as well. We should we should connect and do lunch one day. I'm not sure where you're based out of the UK, right? Yeah, it is indeed. Come on over and visit me in my 600-year-old house. Oh, I love it. I love it. Sounds great. Next time I'm in Europe, I'll stop by. Perfect. I'd love to see you. Thank you for taking the time. Really enjoyed uh, learning from you. Likewise. Take care. And that brings us to the end of another great episode of the Tech Leaders Playbook. I want to thank you for joining us and hope you took away some valuable insights to apply in your professional journey. Don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss out on the next great conversation. I promise it'll be good. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you could leave us a review. Your feedback not only helps us improve, but also help others discover the podcast. Better leaders mean better working environments. Better working environments leads to happier people. I'm Avita Santablian, and this has been the Tech Leaders Playbook. Keep leading, keep learning, keep giving, and I'll see you on the next one. Until then, stay inspired, my friends.